Hello and welcome to the 42 Rugby Weekly. Gavin Casey here in studio, joined as always by Murray Kitzel of the 42. Harry Murray. I'm great, thanks. All good, you? Me, me too, thanks. Yeah, yeah sorry, yeah. I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> and they tried to keep us apart, but Andy Dunn is back. How are you, Andy? I haven't seen you in a long, long time. Yeah, it's been a while, but um, it's great to be back. How are you, Gavin? More importantly. Ah, that's very good of you, Andy. No, <laughs> I'm, I'm excellent bad. now. Even better now, I have to say. Uh, lots to talk about. We'll be looking ahead to the Champions Cup semi-finals of course and uh, having a look as well at Jacob Stockdale at 15 and how proficient he was and exciting he was there for Ulster last weekend uh, we've got an interview with Gordon Darcy on a variety of topics uh, but firstly uh, just before we came into studio Rory Best announced his intention to retire from all rugby at the end of the Rugby World Cup so he'll be finishing up with Ulster as well uh, perhaps wilting under the pressure of Ryan Bailey's questions to him a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, <laughs> constantly asking about, about his future. Um, but just to touch upon it, Murray, uh, like there's not a great deal to be said because there there have been sort of various tributes paid to him uh, when he announced his re- uh, intention to retire from Ireland. But you know, what can you say? One of the best to ever do it in uh, in Ulster white and an Irish green. Yeah, and he gets the perfect chance to to bow out in glittering style, really, at the World Cup and. Um, hopefully helping Ireland to an historic achievement there. 116 caps so far, so we'll end up with over 120, you'd imagine. He's captain Ireland to a Grand Slam, helped him to series victory in Australia, first ever win against South Africa on South African soil, and of course two wins over the All Blacks, so it's not been a bad couple of years for him. Um, I think we knew this is coming, he's turning 37 in August, so probably right at the end of his career and uh, in terms of physicality he's going to burn himself right out at the World Cup but listen that list of achievements even before that he won another Grand Slam with Ireland as a, as a player um, he's right up there as one of the greats of Irish rugby Andy your uh, memories of him even though he's not dead I should say but <laughs> um, well two Grand Slams is I suppose the, the thing that stands out for me and one as captain but um I didn't realise he was 37. I actually thought he was... Turning 37 in August, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or 30... Okay, 37. I thought he was slightly younger. But, um, yeah, I, I think um, a very industrious player, uh, which is often the the requirements of hooker, not not your Keith Wood type hooker. But then again, um, hugely effective. And, uh, yeah, he's uh, he will go down, in, no doubt, in the Hall of Fame for Irish players. And uh, yeah, hopefully he can just hang in there in terms of quality leading into that World Cup. And it's important that he does for us, that he maintains that quality in right right through to the tail end and then goes out in a high, hopefully. Yeah, well, of course, famously, we ask the hard questions in this podcast. Have you noticed a drop off in that quality as yes. he's gone on in years? Yeah, I think so. I think he's uh, I think he's had some, some poor games in the last 18 months that were probably not typical of his overall standard in the years prior to that. So that's, But that's normal as players get older. And uh, so it's probably a, a question of, of managing his the resources there's only so much left in his reservoir and we've got to be very smart with it and uh, no doubt he is capable of stepping up but it's probably he's probably not capable of stepping up every single week anymore so yeah and in a certain way he's capable of stepping up it's probably being that rock player high numbers there and just yeah. delivering on a set piece yeah. and that leadership I think that's what Joe Schmidt needs from him now he, yeah. you saw in a couple of games maybe where they got him on the ball and looked to use him as a link passer didn't look comfortable in that role and, and certainly it's pretty clearly defined what he's going to do for Ireland. Yeah. I think one of the regrets he might have is just how those Lions tours worked out for him. 2013, you remember, there was that game against the Brumbies where his throwing kind of fell apart and that tour didn't go well and and obviously 2017 as well. However, I would say that I listened to Joe Marler talking about him on, the, on that tour and he was the leader of the piss-up. So he was yeah, well respected yeah. by the English players for that because on, on those tours, if you're not on the first team, it can be yeah, a yeah. tough time, but... Apparently, he was leading the battle off the pitch as well. Yeah, so I think Johnny Sexton's Freudian slip there recently uh, was kind of insightful as well, that he is a leader on the piss and on the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there, so. Uh, <laughs> let's look at Leinster and Toulouse uh, to begin with. What a what a game this is. Again, I, I suppose going into the fixture, the second one uh, in the RDS, in the pool stages, we had built it up as the game of the season thus far. And while it was um, an entertaining game, it wound up being uh, fairly one-sided as far as the scoreline was concerned in the end. But, um, you know, a few months on, what kind of nicker are both these teams in compared to where they were uh, in the pool stages? I might start with yourself, Andy, there. It seems as though, like, and we did touch upon it last week, even though Leinster have two home semi-finals in the two competitions that they're fighting for, 
that there's a bit of a, a narrative of like concern around them at the moment. Mm. I suppose the defeat at Glasgow, you can write <coughs> off in the sense that they had nothing to play for. Sort of the same with the draw against Benetton. But even the win over Ulster, as impressive as it is to win a quarterfinal and a mm. really hard fought one, it was kind of like the questions afterwards were more in relation to what was going wrong with Leinster than what they were doing right. Yes, they are. They're dwindling in form. Last year, in comparison, last year was a momentum building season that, you know, they, they went almost from strength to strength. They got greater belief with each win. And I, I remember that, that game in the sunshine against Scarlets in, in Aviva and it was just a blitzkrieg. The first 20 minutes was as intense, physically intense and explosive I've seen from any team in, in probably in recent couple of years in memory. It was just formidable to watch. And I remember it for Henshaw's return as well, because he'd been out for, well, very little time as it happens for shoulder reconstruction and hit the ground running. And uh, they're not quite at that pitch to me. They're, they're also a squad that is l- lacking in the depth that they had last year. When you take out Nasiwa, you take out Joey Carberry, you take out Jordy Murphy, they have not been replaced in terms of like-for-like like quality. They have been replaced. And while Leo and Stuart and uh, the coaching team in general have brought through great depth over the recent seasons and deserve great applause for that, it's it's a level of depth that's not, you know, standout performers in the European Cup semi-final depth. It's, you know, turn up and do a job against Treviso when we need to rest senior players' depth. And I think last year they had they had marquee players who were struggling to get into that starting team and less so this year. So I think that's contributed overall to a slight deterioration in, in their standard and quality. Um, and I think they're very aware of that themselves and they're, you know, they're very self-critical. Um, so can, you know, can they rise to, I think they have it in them to rise again to, to two top level performances as semis and, and potentially a final but I don't think they can consistently perform like they did last year just based on that that part that the kind of exchange they've had with personnel mm. yeah I, I think it's been almost bad that they qualified so early for their semi-final in the Pro 14 because even if players are trying to impress and show that that depth is is quality if there's nothing on the line it's very very hard to to match the opposition just in terms, of, in terms of that motivation, that focus. So I don't think that has helped. Um, and obviously the, the post-Six Nations thing was an issue. Like Stuart Lancaster talked about it this week. They spoke to the players after that, trying to get them through that mindset that hoping it didn't carry over. Now, we don't know with Johnny Sexton because he hasn't played. And yeah. that, that is a, a bit of a concern. He has shown in the past that he can come back from spells out and really impress. <coughs> Robbie Henshaw did that last weekend against Glasgow. I thought he was really good and defensively, he was strong and I think they've missed his leadership in, in that area. Devon Toner back as well was really positive to, to run that line out. You'd imagine him and James Ryan pairing up again in, in what will be a really strong team. So I think they have all those two tools and elements coming back together. Hopefully James Lowe is going to feature mm. um, the selection. Hopefully those goes his this his way this week because he adds so much again to yeah. just the energy, the exits, to attacking play, to offloading um, and also to that... I guess that communication, he's just such a strong... But I think he suits that the, the chaos type of game that, that Lancaster talks about, that being comfortable in chaos. And I, I wonder out loud here, you know, when the vast majority of the Leinster team which go and play for Ireland, is there a period of they have to assimilate back to the Leinster demands, which to a large degree might be Lancaster and Cullen trying to untrain them again like to to try and say okay they've gone into you, you talk about Warren Ball or Joe Schmidt Ball or the type of way Joe plays and wants Ireland to play is very different so when they come out of that scenario do they have to kind of deconstruct a bit yeah get comfortable with the idea of more freedom and uh, and that's hard too it's very hard to adjust between those two styles as players yeah so but, that, but I think I think Lowe represents the kind of madness and the flair and the chaos that Lancaster wants to embrace at times yeah and I think that's really important because I actually think at times Leinster really look like Ireland um, yeah like their possession stats are always they're really high highest in Europe mm. and Pro 14 I think maybe behind Edinburgh slightly um, but they actually do tend to grind. They do. They can do they that. Do. They, their strength last season, I thought, and we possibly haven't seen it as much, was the ability to notably shift style depending on the opposition. Yeah. Whereas this season, it's almost looked like 
and maybe that is a hangover from Ireland, we're just going to bully them. And, and when that doesn't work, say against Glasgow, last weekend it didn't yeah, work. They got yeah. physically bullied by Glasgow to, yeah. to lose the game. So I think we need to see that little bit of, I don't know what the word is, that kind of more creative, more chaos mm. approach w w would be really beneficial in this game. Now, the only thing on that is Toulouse would love that. Mm. You, you look at a possible blueprint and denying Toulouse any possible turnovers is the is the way to go about it. Now, Leinster have the fewest turnovers on average of anyone in Europe. Um, so that is a, is a positive. So you can imagine them playing a similar game plan to January when it was Ross Byrne running the ship and they managed just not to turn over the ball. They, they kind of grinded it out mm. 60, 70 minutes it took, but they, but they got there in the end. I can imagine a similar approach, but I can actually imagine the winning and then people going again, oh, that wasn't a very impressive Leinster victory. And yet there they are in the final of Europe and semi-final of Pro 14 as well so I think Lancaster just reading his comments I wasn't at the press conference this week but it, it feels like he's kind of bristling at the suggestion that they're not playing very well he's talking about hammering wasps he's talking about winning against Toulouse in January he's talking about beating wasps away um, and he's saying potentially that there's a bit of recency bias which I think is always the case and I think current form is important as well but um, I think if they can limit Toulouse's turnover ability and again grind them down then they'll be really pleased with that yeah, how much uh, or how important is it rather than if you're going to limit their turno turnover ability and knowing how they dangerous they are um, in that transition from defense to attack to just hold on to the ball the way they did, they did in uh, in the first game or sorry, in the second game in the pools. Like, I think they have 55% possession, uh, Leinster, which isn't like an enormous amount or, or an enormous, uh, enormous level of dominance, but it was enough. And they also had, I think, something like 60% territory. Um, they kicked twice as much. Like they just managed the game better and yeah. probably limited to lose uh, with those opportunities. I think the key is to have, like keeping the ball doesn't have to be a negative thing. It doesn't have to be one out. I mean, you think of, say, Ross Burns' crossfield kick to Dave Carney in that match. That's a really brave, skillful, attacking, exciting moment uh, within retention of possession. Like he backed his skills to say, I'm going to hit my winger here and he's going to score. Um, and I, I don't think it has to be just Bish, like bash off the nine, ball carrying, which is going to be a key part of it, as we know. I mean, even Keen Healy's benching back last week was really ex exciting, and Tyke Fern looks like he's going to be fit. So you have that ability to do that. But I think for guys like Johnny Sexton to be that second wave attacker, for Henshaw to look to get his hands free, and Lowe, of course, will do that. And um, that's where it comes in. And I think the, maybe the concern is that the confidence in their play isn't quite there to, to actually back themselves to use those skills. But I think. They have that ability, uh, certainly to retain possession without just being negative. Um, looking at the, uh, well, Johnny Sexton, who you mentioned there a minute ago, there's a question here from Bob Landers5 on Instagram. Uh, cheers for getting in touch, Bob. He just asks, is it the right call to start Sexton for his first game in 2019? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I personally, I would say yes. Uh, Maybe I'm getting into the judgment mindset too much, but <laughs> he's the World Player of the Year. Like I know the most recent memory of him is in is in Cardiff, uh, kind of falling apart in that game. Mm. But I just think he has so much quality, and he's such an he's the captain first and foremost. He's such an important leader, mm. such a good decision maker. I think with having had that f space and mentally to get himself sharp, and also on the training pitch to sharpen up a few things he felt needed, I, I would definitely back him. Mm. Um, I just think he brings so much more to, to Leinster's game. Yeah, and when you, you mentioned uh, Lancaster bristling in, in the interviews with the press, I, I would have thought Johnny's pretty bristly. You know, just based on his own form and just based on his own standards, I'd say he is dying to get out there and just get a good game under his belt for himself, for his influence, for his leadership, for all of the things that make him tick. I'd say he's just dying to get out and correct that that Welsh game um, to feel healthy to feel like he's contributing again he's he's integral to them I'd say he's just gone crazy can't wait on Saturday to start yeah. say, or Sunday and we'll get an idea from like the restarts was a big thing in Wales his mm. first one if they take the kickoff is going to be really interesting because yeah. he'll have been working so hard on those little bits of his game rather than going oh I've completely lost form Hopefully Leinster, from their point of view, won't be taking a lot of restarts because they won't have conceded too many, but he'll look forward to dropping one there, maybe for Devon Toner, yeah. winning the ball back. And in a moment like that, just right on back. But it's really interesting that in that Welsh game when he did the kind of grubber style uh, restart 
that that for when I played was a classic. If anyone saw that, there was a classic case of the wheels have fallen off. <laughs> was it the ten? I was like, you know what? When things are going really bad. I'm going to pull a rabbit out of a hat. I've come. I've got it, and I'm going to do a grubber kick. Uh, try and reach, re, regather it myself. Like it's kind of a. It's very indicative of your thought process breaking down as a ten. Yeah. Um, and I was really surprised. That happened, Johnny. You've never really seen that in him. He's so together and single-minded that I just went, Jesus, that's what I used to do when things were going <laughs> wrong. And uh, so, I, you know, it was indicative, I think, of where he was at, the, probably the desperation and the poor performance in Wales. I've got to do something here. So in a way, it's a positive that he's still thinking, I've got to affect change for the group, but he did it in the wrong way in Wales. And again, those type of things, it'll be interesting to see. I would imagine his restarts will be on the money. They'll be very consistent. They'll be nice and lofty and, and going into that space where they'll have their seven kind of as a sitting duck and Toner and Ryan kind of piling through, maybe mm. Fardy, whoever else. So uh, that I think that'll show he's, the wheels are back on, he's back on track, but the restarts will be instructive. Yeah. While we're on the topic of kicking, actually, I have to raise a point with Andy. Yes. I've been watching the Reds. Dave yes. Allred is their kicking coach. I know, I know where we're going. <laughs> and they're spiral <laughs> kicking everything. I know, I know. It's, it's absolutely mental after we slam them on I'll make, uh, I'll make a small <laughs> climb down in that. Um, <laughs> when he coached, or when he, and now, again, this is back in the, in the, on the days in the arc when I was involved. When he coached, he, he did coach the spiral and he instructed it very scientifically. It's the same kick as the end over end. It's just the way you place the ball onto your foot. It, okay. Nothing changes in the mechanics. So in fairness, I was probably a bit unfair. I think I was a bit loose in terms of my criticism, but Generally, the players he coaches do the end over end because yeah. of risk and they, they go away from the spiral. But he does coach the same construct and just say the ball placement is different on your foot. So I'll hold my hands up. And when I saw the Reds kicking spirals, I was delighted. <laughs> there was even, I think there was even a dead duck, possibly. I well, I don't think he coaches the dead <laughs> that's duck. That's, way, that's way too disruptive and innovative <laughs> for Dave Allred. <clears throat> uh, on the Toulouse side of things then, right, they've won 14 of their last 16 in the league, um, coming off a 47-44 win over Clermont in what was a, obviously a mental game. Uh, where did they need to uh, improve in order to do better uh, in Dublin this time? Obviously, they won the, the fixture at home in the pool stages, so they're not a million miles off and they've had a, a marvellous season. Like, I have the stats here from that game in Dublin and they weren't a million miles off in pretty much any facet. Like, as we were saying, possession was 55-45, but even things like carries was 176-151 in Leinster's favour, uh, line breaks 8-7 to seven in Leinster's favour, defenders beaten 27-25. to 25. Like, it was quite even across the board, just Leinster had the edge in nearly everything. Uh, so they couldn't be that far off, really. No, definitely not. Um, I think the keys for them will be delivering the kind of consistency that they've had around set-piece. Like, their scrum, I think, is 100% in this competition. They've played off it really well. Their ball carriers have been organised and, and effective. They're so powerful. They're such a range of, of strong ball carriers and their squad depth is actually superb. I mean, they make changes every single weekend and, and it's really exciting the fact that there's a homegrown mix of players always in the mix there for them as well. Um, I think what's going to be really important for them is DuPont, who looks potentially like he'll be back at nine and Zach Holmes at 10. I guess having the lessons from that game in the RDS where they managed to just get squeezed out. They created a lot of opportunities earlier on. They didn't take those. He had a, a number of line breaks where they didn't finish. But then after that, Leinster just had that stranglehold on the game in terms of bossing the possession, working their kicking game really well and and not allowing them to lose into the, the attacking style of play that they're, they're so good at. As well as that, it's getting guys like Ches and Colby opportunities. And obviously the set piece is going to play a really important that important part in that. His try against Clermont again was the latest bit of brilliance where he fell on the floor and got back yeah. and just scurries <laughs> past all these big slow moving giants and, and scores a brilliant try it's just so much fun to watch I remember him uh, it was Scott Fardy skinned down the touchline in about a metre of space mm. when, they, when they played in the RDS and <laughs> he's just a, a joy to watch so getting those guys opportunities from their set piece platform <clears throat> which has to deliver is really vital I think Leinster will really go after them particularly out of touch there it's a bit like it's it's not irreverent about his physique or anything, but like it's a bit like a cartoon sometimes watching him. 
because he just like you don't see players that size and shape and speed a whole lot anymore and watching a guy fall on the floor get up and just like you know scurry around five defenders and still score is it's kind of refreshing to watch isn't it but yeah like the cartoon uh you know what i'm uh, alluding to just from that image is just so different we're used to seeing far more mechanical players i think so it's really refreshing to watch it yeah, and that's why it's sad that Damian McKenzie has been injured in the yeah, World Cup is. because he's very much in that mould. And he's, it's been interesting to see a team as brilliant as the All Blacks for such a number of years having to look to a guy like him because mm. the game has changed so much. There's so yeah. much line speed. There's so much organisation in defence. There's so much stifling work done to prevent attacks actually flourishing. And I would say that's been the biggest change in the last decade in rugby. That a guy like him who is almost like a, a, the joker in the pack is yeah. vital for the best team in the world and playing that 10-15 axis they're going to really miss him in the world they will it's really interesting thinking of shifts in in tre- trend shifts in rugby but there was a period where we want we want our wingers and our fullbacks big and we need them 6-3 and they need to be good in the air and suddenly you look at Colby you look at Damian McKenzie you look at Mike Lowry uh, mm. in the Ulster-Leinster game smallest guy in the pitch physically absolutely able to to hold his own beat most of the time beat the first or second defender uh, launched some counter-attacks um, so there is a shift that way for, for small angry men like myself so I'm delighted about <laughs> <a bit. laughs> great Love to it. see we're on the way back Love it Yeah it's just for Toulouse it's just a, a culmination of a, a wonderful season where they've really I mean, they've been working towards it, but the spirit has really been rediscovered. Reggie Son coming back in there as well has helped. He's added, I guess, emotionally and the understanding of the Toulouse culture, as well as a bit of a hard edge to the forwards pack. Um, and the, the presence of so many homegrown players is, is really thrilling. Look, they're back in the semi-finals. They've won four titles before. They'll feel this is where they belong. And really, they get a, a nice kind of a shot at it. No one expects them to win. Leinster are, are the favourites. And I just can't wait to see what Toulouse come up with. Yeah, two of our favourites sat down for a chat. Sean Farrell from the 42 uh, met up with Gordon Darcy ahead of this one. Gordon Darcy, thanks very much for joining 42 Rugby Weekly. Uh, we're overlooking the Aviva Stadium. It's uh, looking in, in good shape for Leinster Toulouse Champions Cup semi-final ahead. It's a fixture that doesn't need much more hyping up than that. The two teams have such rich, rich history. For me, anyway, I can't look at these two teams' names and not think back to 2006 a pretty epic quarterfinal you were involved in down in Toulouse. Uh, looking back now, everything that's followed since, was that the start of something special, do you feel? Um, I think so. Like That was really the uh, the Cheka era, really the kind of first, the first footprint. There's a great, um, there's a great quote about uh, success, is, uh, about uh, success being a paradox and it's built on failure. Um, so I think for, for Leinster to be where they are today, there's an awful lot of uh, hard lessons that to be learned. Um, so yeah, we had a brilliant win in down in Toulouse, and you know it's a it's a lovely memory, particularly the uh, Genesee try. Um, but everything we did that day was just um, you know 22 players really pulling for each other and pushing together and really doing what we needed to see to overturn one of the one of the royalties of uh, of, of European rugby. Um, and then how that translates into today, you know, you've probably, you, you've seen, you know, I suppose, two teams' trajectory change uh, seismically since, since then. And Leinster have gone on to win four Heineken Cups and uh, Toulouse have been um, in, a, in, a bit of a, in a bit of a downturn um, and now seem to have turned back to their academy and uh, starting to regenerate and come back up to where they, where they should be as one of the, one of the forefront uh, teams in European rugby and playing very, very French rugby. Yeah, there, there's obviously a few games down the years that have been absolute crackers. I, I look out there now and I, I think this is going to be more like 2011 uh, semi-final. I think that was Joe's first year. But in those five years, is it even quantifiable? Can you... Talk about the, the cultural shift that, that went on over the, the five years between those two games. I don't think there's been, there hasn't been much of a cultural shift, to be honest. Um, it's actually a continuation of a, of a strong culture, which is a testament to Leo and Stuart that they've built in on, uh, on, on what uh, Joe and Michael uh, put, in, put in place in Leinster. Um, like that game against Toulouse here was... You never felt the job was done until the final whistle, um, and that's a testament to you know the group of players that we had and the mindset that we had, um, but also the team that we were playing against. Um, guys, we would have played a lot with against France, 
um, made our Poitrino, um it's a Fritz clerk like all these you know household names were either transitioning out or were were still were still playing at, at that time um and now there's another new crop playing here for for Toulouse um with a similar kind of a vintage playing together and mm. you know friends on the pitch and you can see that um but the yeah the challenge for Leinster is it's real and it's uh and they're going to be very they're going to be tested this weekend I think at that time as you say it, it was one Leinster European Cup to Toulouse's four at that stage and, and Leinster have gone on to win three since. I mean, how much were Toulouse a benchmark for, for that Leinster growth? Or was it more Leo coming back from Leicester, Leo and Shane Jennings coming back from Leicester, Owen Redden coming back from Wasps? Was it all grown from within or or was much taken from clubs around Europe? Um, like, I think you look back at the trajectory and you just, of and how thing, of, of what happened. And you know, a couple of us were, were there from the, you know, the semi-amateur era, to the, the 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 genesis of professionalism into the you know, high performance uh, team that we see now today, um, I think it was driven. It like a change like that has to be driven within, and there's no you can take motivation from external folks. It's like I never wanted to emulate Toulouse. Um, I loved the way I loved the club and how they played the game um, growing up, but we were very much focused on winning. Um, Munster was always a huge a huge motivator it was was you know that's probably is the only team that was a huge there's a huge rivalry around that era um the o'connells the foley's o'gara stringers against the the same kind of cohort here all the same ages and same caliber and watching them win heineken cups and beat us and uh, in in Lansdowne road and yeah that, that was that was a key driver in in change but once you start a process you know that can be a catalyst but it can't be the motivation behind it there has to be something bigger than that and thankfully there was and um so we still we still get to, we're still reaping the benefits of that today like legacy seems to be a word that has often been i think johnny might have been the first to use it back in 11 12 talking about legacy and put, putting an extra star on the badge i mean players now aren't really afraid of saying they want a fifth star I think there was a lot of talk about it this week that uh, they want they've matched to lose with, with four apiece and, and now they're they're gunning for an extra one yeah like sport by its very nature is regenerative as in you can have so my 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 group my period kind of transitioned over maybe two generations of of rugby and we had one group who won nothing um, and then one group that won three Heineken Cups in a very short period of time Um there's not that many players playing that have four of those Heineken Cups. I think there's only two, maybe three of that group. So for most of those guys, it's they've had one or one, you know, maybe two, but probably less Heineken Cups to their name. So it's not necessarily about legacy for them. It's about winning, and winning is um, it's a habit as much as anything else. Um, and they won last year, and you know, you you when you have a group of players that get very selfish about how they want to when they about wanting to win it gets it gets really really competitive in the environment if you have a strong culture that can that can push people to do really um impressive things and i think we have that with leinster and we have that that nouse of playing cup rugby um, which is really really important um but yeah i think f- for the majority of these guys it's going to be about just it's about winning one or two guys talking about legacy, and you know, if uh, one or two of these guys get another star or two on their, on their on 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 the jersey, they can start talking in that in in that breath. But this is this is just uh, this is about it's about winning, which is a it's a great place to be. As I said at the start, we're overlooking the Aviva Stadium. We're here to you're here to launch the Aviva Stadium tour. Uh, have you any standout memories of of playing out there, either in the redeveloped version or or yeah, the old style? You know, my f- a couple like I came back, um, came in. I d- actually did did the tour here, um, and one of the bits that I really enjoyed, kind of coming back in, is there's a lovely, there's a lovely part of this process of playing for Ireland that is very personal, and that's the bit that happens kind of in the belly of the stadium. You come in on the bus, and you come in through the, uh, you come in through the doors, and you go into the uh, change room, and it's a real private bit, and that's a really. It's very different to Lansdowne Road, and Lansdowne Road was uh, the old Lansdowne Road, and there's lots of memorabilia from the old Lansdowne Road in there. But the 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 type of environment that that was was quite a hostile nature, and it was very you know the hot wa- hot water might work, might not work. It was kind of it fitted how Ireland played rugby at that kind of that uh, time, that real um, 
uh, underdog approach and the kind of stadium really kind of reflected how Ireland was playing. Um, but now when you when you flip back and you're into these change room and it's beautiful, it's immaculate. Um, and when you're walking in, one of the things I noticed when you're walking in is there's a there's a medal from the 09 Grand Slam win and a ball signed by some of the 1948 um, Grand Slam winning team. And that puts that in, into perspective. Um, and now that I'm finished and you look back at those things, the, the, you know, the scale of that achievement, you know, that's two Grand Slams. And now we have the third one in there, but that's three Grand Slams in the, in the, in the career of Irish rugby. It's, it's uh, breathtaking to, or, you know, to, to think about that. But that whole bit in there where you're coming in through those doors, but that's the player's entrance. You know, and to be go through those doors again, do it when you line out in the tunnel and just before you walk out in the pitch. It's a special moment, regardless of what happens on that. You know, you're part of that legacy. You're part of that history and part of that moment. And you're representing your country and you're wearing a jersey. And I think, you know, when I was walking around here today, that's kind of the that's kind of the, the memories and the emotion that came back to it. It was like those bits are very, very visual, but the emotion really happens in the uh, in the inside of it where you're kind of, you know, the same seat and, you know, how many times you want to wear that jersey and how many times you want to get one of those and you want to be back here again and you want to have that feeling. You know, you get really, really, um, really uh, greedy about ha- having that feeling um, and walking in those doors and Paddy O'Reilly greeting you with a cup of tea. They're really, really special memories for me. Super stuff there from Gordon Darcy. Uh, time to look at... Saracens and Munster. Uh, there's a question here to kick off with, and we might as well um, get it out of the way. Not the question itself, but rather the topic, because we did uh, go into it a bit last week. And as we predicted, it did move on a little bit. But Eric Fitzgerald asks, uh, do you think that Billy Vunapola was genuine in his apology? And will this whole series of events have any impact on Saracens' preparations? I suppose, firstly, it's not up to us to say whether he was genuine in his apology, only... Billy will know that for sure. But uh, in terms of it affecting or having any impact on Sari's preparation, Andy, as a former player, I might uh, throw that one to yourself to begin with. Which, sorry. Will it, will it have any impact on Saracen's preparation? Billy's comment. Well, all the furore surrounding uh, it. Uh, no, I wouldn't have thought so. Uh, I don't think he was genuine in his apologies <laughs> while we're at it. <laughs> um, but, you know, people have to get the edges polished off them and uh, they're dead right. They got to reverse him out of that very, very quick. Uh, pretty dumb thing to do at the moment. But um, I don't think it's going to affect. Saris have come out and dealt with it. You know, from a PR media communications thing, they've done all the right things. Um, they've admonished him. They've said it's on his record. And if he kind of comes out with it again, you know, they will act on it. Much I think like what happened with Falau the first time. He kind of got his his warning and then obviously he's done it again and gone. So, um, so uh, no, in short, I don't think it's going to affect Saracen's prep for the game. Not, it's, they'll have a very technical prep. I'd imagine they'll have an easy week physically. Um, they're trying to uh, get their, their competition levels physically right. So quite an easy week in terms of, of workload and training, I would have thought. And um, I don't, you know, I don't think Billy's comments are going to change anything. It may, I don't think anyone within Saracens would agree and clearly the club has come out and said they don't agree with what he said or, or did. But almost in a way, I can imagine kind of framing it as a, okay, it's us against them. People are getting on Billy, our, our boy Billy Vinohola's back um, and kind of de- de- supporting him that way and using it as a bit of a motivator almost. He's going to get booed. There's no doubt about that. I would imagine the Munster fans will let him know that they don't agree with what he said either. But I can imagine them having that kind of us against them mentality around it. They're an unbelievably tight knit squad. Like the culture off the pitch there is so strong. It's one of the main reasons players want to go there. Obviously, they get well paid as well, which helps. But <laughs> even recently, they were off on that ski trip um, on the piss the week of a match, but just bonding together, doing stuff around team uh, team bonding and, and collective leadership and that. They really take care of the players off the pitch in terms of helping them get education or start up businesses. Uh, investing in some of them as well, which has maybe been slightly controversial as well. <laughs> but they, they've managed to create this really strong culture off the pitch, even though, as uh, Mark McCall said this week, they don't have a whole lot of fans. Like Munster's fans are going to outnumber mm. them in, in the Rico Arena. It'll feel like a home match again, I would imagine, for Munster. But they always look for these little little things that can, I don't know, motivate, motivate them a bit more. And I can imagine almost this being one. Let's, let's get behind Billy Vunapola and... 
um, show more. There's, there's some pretty, I'm sure there's some pretty educated liberal guys in the Saracen squad who won't like what he said either. And when they're, they're getting yeah. booed and they're up against the cosh in an outnumbered by fans in the Rico Arena, might be thinking, I wish he kept his mouth shut. And, you know. Yeah, I, and I'm not sure things. anyone yeah. would agree with what yeah. he said yeah. by any means, but like you know what rugby players are like. Yeah, he's, their, he's their guy, like, do you know? Yeah, true. true. I know he's fundamentally important to their game as well, so they'll yeah. row in behind, I'm sure. Short memories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too, many head, too many head hits. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to edit that out. <laughs> um, yeah, on the Monster side of things then, um, I suppose the, the place to start is probably at, uh, at out half while we have you here, Andy. Um, the Johan van Graan and anybody who is asked is saying that uh, Joey Carberry is highly unlikely, highly unlikely mm. has been the, the term to feature uh, at the Rico Arena and obviously that will likely mean that Tyler Blaindell deputises at 10. Um, just wondering from your point of view, is there much that Munster will need to change in order to facilitate Blaindell? But maybe facilitate is a bit harsh on him, but uh, just do they need to change their game plan uh, to adapt to him coming in for Carberry? And what are they losing in Carberry or well, perhaps like, gaining in Blaindell? Um, no, I, I'd be fairly unequivocal in my mind that it's a loss. It's quite a significant loss if Joey's not there. And while Blaindell has come back from a long unfortunate period of injury and being very able uh, very very competent in, in what he's done he's uh, he's not as talented as Joey and in a European Cup semi-final against probably one of the best defences in Europe over the last three years you need a guy with um, game breaking quality that Joey has uh, so I think it's a significant loss if he doesn't start. The The counter-argument is uh, Tyler Blaindall, while not as um, game-breaking in terms of quality as Joey, is a better overall game manager, is more cerebral about the game and is, is, a, is better able to involve everyone on the field. And that has its benefits for mobilising the Munster army, which is what they're going to have to do against Saracens. But I think uh, that would be unfair to Joey also um, because he's, I think, since that Castro game where he he had a, a bad night, and it wasn't even that bad, but it wasn't his greatest performance, he, he answered in such a resolute way. His placing stats are off the charts. His general game play has been outstanding. And... Uh, I think I think ultimately I, I can't see it any other way as just being a, a loss and a disadvantage for Munster that he's not starting. I don't think it means it's an impossible task. I still think they can win actually with Blaindell starting, but they'll need to be at, at peak level. Yeah, would you go along with that, Murray? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Carby will be missed in the aspect that they need to show more in attack this time around. You think back to two years ago and they just fired no shots at no. all. In the Aviva Stadium, it was... It was partly or probably predominantly down to game plan. They decided to go with this very kick-heavy, uh, try and win the territory, not really push themselves skills-wise. And I think of so many examples where even forwards had a chance to maybe link out the back and mm. there wasn't even a call, there wasn't even anyone set up. It was just bash away and take on that power game the Saracens have. Carberry possesses the ability creatively, footwork-wise, acceleration, vision and, and backing himself to really break a game and we've seen that a few times for, for Ireland and for Munster as well even his short kicking game as well mm. and I think that will be missed in what I think would be a, a tight tussle of a game both sides still like to kick for territory you saw Saracens even as they scored seven tries against Glasgow uh, kicked everything out of their own half really mm. one two phases if we're not going to break them we're going to put the ball down there and pressure them that's been a, a kind of trope in their play for a long time. And Munster certainly very much do the same. I think they've only scored one try from inside their own half in this competition so far. So you wouldn't expect that to change greatly, particularly with Carberry's ability to, to cut a defence missing there. So I think they will miss him that way. I do think Blaindahl is, is an able replacement, as you say, in, in organising. Mm. And he is a massive tactical leader in this squad anyway. Even when he's not playing, his real input on their game plans and their decision making on the menu of plays that they use in each game. He's a great thinker on the game and, and probably someone who will be a, a coach pretty soon, mm. I would imagine. Um, so yeah, he he offers that. You just want him to pose as much of a threat as he can. We were talking about it before off air, Gav. Just take the ball to the line, mm. fix a defender, 
give the guys outside him a chance. And I think he has shown increasing willingness to take the contact as he's grown into this since his latest recovery. Remarkable recovery, really, from a serious neck injury, which we shouldn't um, overlook. It's it's tough to come back and it's tough to take contact. And he is a brave guy to put himself through that twice now. So I think he's grown into that. I think he's willing in, in contact a little bit more and that will hopefully for Munster, um, manifested itself in him giving guys outside him that little bit more space in the ball. Because I think their skills have improved collectively. I think we've seen the glimpses of it. And even he was involved in the Keith Earls winning try, albeit on a decoy line, but a pretty selfless and intelligent decoy. I think they've got your... your on the money in terms of saying when he has to take the ball to the line against Saris, if they have a master plan that involves playing their plays in front of the Saracens' defence, like and Saracens watching and tracking with a view to Munster, you know, creating an overlap at some stage. I think they're going nowhere. They have no chance in this game. It'll end up like two years ago where that game could have gone on literally for two more weeks and they, they wouldn't have scored. That game is kind of burned into my memory as watching mm. a rugby match. I've, I don't think I've seen a game where the, the 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 team attacking just looks so bereft of creativity and they, they, they were never, ever going to score in that game and they were running plays in front of the Saris defence. There was no, they didn't engage them at any stage. It was like, let's do what we had in the plan and see, do we create the overlap or the space? And Saris just smothered it. They've got, they need Blaindal and they, whoever starts at 12 and 13, they need them to penetrate that line that Sari's line. They need them to attack the space in between defenders and and create doubt in the Saracens' defence. And the risk being you get caught man and ball, you get turned over, you don't get the offload away. But um it's pretty it's pretty impossible to think they can they can play a very kind of passive game in front of Saris and break them down at some point after seven or eight phases. I think they've got to go for broke. Which yeah. is what they kind of did two years ago it was very passive and like when you consider that like Blaindell two years ago was there was like he was called into an Ireland squad in 2017 yeah, he was Monsters player of the season yeah. he was actually an aggressive uh, kind of yeah. go forward out half he was taking the ball to the line and against Saracens he wasn't able to do that no. now we're saying he's actually deteriorated as a player which he has and he may mm. rediscover that form of old but he's not there yet so like how important are the centres and the likes going to be yeah. in order to to make that penetration? Well, Farrell, I think, is, is going to be absolutely key. And the more I watch him, the more I think he's key in most teams he plays in because of his skill set and his physique. So um, I think he could have quite an imprint on the match if if they're ballsy and if Blaindahl can take it to the line and maybe whip a, whip a ball across late to Farrell who's asking questions of their midfield who can get his arms free to a back rower in, in support or you know that type of moment can shift the whole momentum of a match two to three line breaks in a semi-final if they get those things happening suddenly Saris are in disarray defensively which changes the match but they ain't going to do it by having a nice uh, array of of uh, clean, homogenised plays in front of Saris and thinking they're going to break them down that way. they got to get rough and ready and take to the line and take some risks. Yeah, and that's something that Saracens, for me, lead the way on. And You mentioned yeah. taking to the line. Uh, there's this perception, I don't know if it exists as much now, that they're not a very great attacking team. Like The stats clearly show they score a lot of tries. And their basic skills around taking the ball to the line I'm even thinking of against Glasgow, if people go back and watch the the Brad Barrett try, they hit up in midfield, get a good powerful carry, they are powerful. And then it's two simple screen plays back to the the Mm. bounce back attack, back to the left-hand touchline. But they're done so well. Jamie George gets on the ball, he fixes the defender in front of him. The decoy runner outside him is a real threat. He's not actually a decoy, he's a possibility for a, a short pop out the back and exactly the same shape again. Someone coming short, offering themselves as a real viable option on the short pass, they pull it out the back and they score a try off it. Two simple passes, but done superbly with guys challenging the line. That next man is a, is a possibility and they're really good at those simple de- details. What they do isn't that revolutionary. I th- I'd say they're mm. one of the most studied teams in rugby and I'd say Johan van Graan has seen every single moment of their play for the last six, seven years. He's probably been studying them. He's a, a great analyst of the game. But it's it's the ability to repeatedly do those simple, mm. not simple skills, that's the wrong word, those core skills really well and clear out rooks really well and they and they do that brilliantly. I do think it's going to be a challenge for Chris Farrell as well with that kind of 
rugby league-esque attack that they use. I'm thinking of two examples where Cardiff Blues cut Munster there recently down in Cork. Um, obviously, Munster won that game, but there were two examples where the Munster midfield was just so challenged by those front-door runners and passed out the back, and they sat down a couple of times. I think Saris would have noted that with interest, so expect a couple of those plays into Munster midfield, as, as Saracens always do. But I think for Munster, yeah, everyone's got to be a threat before they pass. It's a big moment, this, for Van Graan, isn't it? When you consider... Sorry, were you going to make a point there? Pardon me. Well, um, go on. Yeah, I mean, I was going to probably was going to make something, but it, it is a big moment for, for Van Graan in terms of how um, how they've evolved. But one of the things I was, I was going to say just on the back of Murray, for the non-Flash Harrys amongst us looking at the game, the... So Saris most likely, I think, will go after the Munster set piece, particularly the scrum because they've got a bit of change out of doing that with other teams but I don't think they're going to get any change against the Munster scrum if Ryan starts and John Klein in behind him I, I spoke I always speak to Peter Coyle the ex-Leinster prop to get advice on his interpretation of scrummaging and his view was that Ryan and Klein in behind him are probably the best tight head lock scrummaging combination in Europe and he mm. says they that is not a trait that you can coach into in training you can only learn that in a match intensity environment how that combination best works and the more he watches those two the more he thinks um, well the more he thinks I suppose the likes of John Ryan needs to be really considered for a genuine backup to Furlong coming into a World Cup um, so I think if, if Saris have a a real tactic to say, right, we're going to deconstruct their scrum. If Munster avoid that, and I think they will, I think gain gain at least parity at the scrum, suddenly a huge focal point of the Saris strategy breaks down. And that, I think, will give Munster a great opportunity. And suddenly, if you go into a game and say, we're going to break them here in order to do X, Y, and Z, but you don't, you fail to break them, at the at that key point, you're suddenly then into uh, you're on an unstable platform for the rest of your game. It was exactly where is a kink or a chink in the armor that Munster can go after. So, the importance of Ryan and and John Klein in in that scrummaging piece is is not to be underestimated coming in coming into this match. And then on top of that, you've got the best defensive lineout forward in in Europe, yeah. potentially the world, in Peter O'Man. He was yeah. going to disrupt that Ty Byrne offers something there as well and then you've got Ty Byrne and Omani again combining with whoever's in the back row as real jackal threats to Saracen's possession uh, talking to Jamie George this week he says we've got a plan in place for Ty Byrne which is already a bit of a win for Munster if, if yeah. that's how he's thinking if that's how they're focusing on okay we may need an extra body in, in the rooks where Ty Byrne is around they're scanning for him he's in their minds that's going to be a fascinating part of it, that spoiling side of it because that's always been a Munster strength and I think it's a a really cool part of their tradition is that they're real competitors in every single set piece and every single breakdown. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see how Munster throw that at Saracens and alternatively how Saris handle that. Mm. Yep, yeah, we'll get your predictions on the two uh, semi-finals at the end of the podcast, which is going to be in about uh, 10 minutes time. But firstly, just a look at uh, Jacob Stockdale last weekend and a potential viable option for Ireland at 15 going forward. One which, to be fair in the 42 comments section has been called for for a long time, that option. Yeah. Um, and re just really exciting, actually. Uh, the, his, obviously, we know his game-breaking ability and what he can do with ball in hand. And obviously, he's, he's uh, qu quite proficient in uh, the kick and chase as well. But it's just sort of interesting to see him in such a key game as well. And the fact that their hand was kind of forced and it worked out so well. Yeah, it worked out really well. He obviously played full-back for the Ireland on-20s when they had that great run to, to that Junior World Championship final. It was impressive in that. He's only played there, I think that was his fifth time maybe starting there at senior level. And he did really well. Like you talk about his game-breaking ability, the thing that impressed me most was his decision-making and his passing on the ball, his ability to draw defenders, to run really good lines. For Robert Balakun's try, he runs a lovely decoy line ahead of the ball, ties in the, the edge defender. And then for Robert Little's really nice finish, he straightens the line, fixes that edge defender and gives a lovely pass. So that side of it was really encouraging to me because for a guy who's been on the wing finishing and being mainly a strike runner you wonder if that side of his game fades away but clearly he has that and clearly he has more to offer in, in that regard um, I guess one of the concerns then on the other side is that there was an aerial contest where the ball just 
kind of banged off his chest again and went forward. And there's been a few of those. He's inconsistent, I think, around the technique of of going up into the air. Clearly, his height, his leap, um, and he has an ability. We saw it against Adam Byrne in that Leinster quarterfinal. When he's on, he's on really strong. But he tends to be a little bit, I don't know if it's concentration or just a technical consistency. Sometimes he doesn't get that, that cradle they talk about, getting the arms tight underneath the ball. Uh, sometimes the timing of the jump is just off and the ball hit off his chest and, and slightly bounced forward. So there are those elements to it, but it was just really interesting. Um, and I don't even think for the World Cup because that's obviously a, a big leap to make so soon, but further down the line, he's only 23. And um, I remember talking to Nigel Carlin, who was his 20s coach, thinking he thought that this guy is going to be a fullback long-term, especially with that left boot, because that could be such a, a big weapon. We've already seen the chip, but he has huge power in it as well. And... Yeah, it could be really exciting. He seems to have the skill set, Andy. Yeah, he's far too tall. I'm all for midgets getting back into <laughs> into fullback now with Mike Lowry coming in. But uh, he um, he does he he does have that, and I think he's got the confidence. And he also he breaks the current Irish mentality, or you know, in terms of the mould. Your fullback, we're all a bit fearful of Larmer, and we're all a bit fearful of Stockdale because they're really good attacking threats, which says a lot about how we think. Because, uh, you know, it's great to see Carney because he's, you know, he's commanding in defence, his positional awareness, what he brings to the overall group, and it's all very steady, eddy kind of mentality. There's there's as equal value as having a brilliant attacking fullback as there is to have a brilliant defensive fullback. And ideally, we'd have someone who's got both somewhere on the spectrum. Uh, Carney's attacking threat is probably not, certainly not what it was, but he, it's, he is peerless in terms of his command of the backfield but there's such a thing as fullbacks who don't have that who can create two tries a match and that's 14 points so there's a lot of value in that too so it's about your your the mindset we have I think Stockdale could be a brilliantly exciting addition to Irish fullback play in, in a couple of years I don't see it happening yeah. come October November but you got a little kind of inkling there last week of what, what is capable there and the likes of Larmer and Potentially even Henshaw in times to come, although he got, you know, criticised from the English game. There there's there are options there when Rob retires, you know, and they're probably more attack minded than defensive. Yeah, it's a really interesting question of philosophy, yeah. Because the temptation to go is look at Stockdale, look at what he created in that Edinburgh game. But then you go, Oh, well, what about his positional play? He's not really used to being yeah. a defensive fifteen. Where is he gonna set up behind scrums? Is he gonna understand the pendulum as well from fifteen as he would yeah. from, from eleven? Well it's the same it, for ten, because if you like not everyone is Raj and not everyone is Johnny Sexton. And if we're if that's our template for tens going forward, then where's the place for Joey Carberry in two years to be the starting ten? When you know, where's the place for Jack Carty, who's a brilliant creative attacking force? So it's it, we've I think we've got to be careful about how we categorize our requirements you know not everyone needs to be a brilliant defensive tactical genius maybe someone needs to be a brilliant creative attacking force yeah in key decisions in a, key positions rather that's a great point like even the, the fact that template is a thing in Irish rugby is it's not a good thing we we, no. we tend to now have this is what we want let's see who fits into that whereas yeah. rugby is about the 15 players on the pitch it should be about adapting around that and, and I guess at the Lower levels of the game, that's the joy of it. You, mm. you adapt to whatever you have. If you have a big, heavy prop, he gets in there and he offers what he can at set piece. But um, that's maybe gone out of the game at, at the top level. Just the other thing on Stockton, I would say, is like his resilience is extraordinary. Even within the space of a couple of minutes, we saw it against the All Blacks where he chipped to, to Kieran Reid and basically should have cost Ireland the game in that moment and then goes and does a, a sim similar skill and, and pulls it off only minutes later to win Ireland the game. From week to week, he shows that resilience as well, where he can bounce back from a, a really poor game where someone's positioning is off and just be confident in making a read to go and intercept the ball. So that's a massive trait. And that's one of the reasons I think as well he could be a successful. That trait is, seems to me to be common in the absolute top echelons of sport, not just rugby. When you talk about Tiger Woods, when you talk about great basketball players, American footballers, GAA, the ones who can shrug off like it never happened, and mm. shrug off the mistake and carry it with them for about five seconds yeah. are always the ones who are the top, top guys because nobody is without mistakes and flaws. But the top guy, I used to absolutely torture myself on the field and, and I'd be still rolling around my head 15 minutes later. The best guys were like, it was a mistake. It's gone. I'm still class. Yeah. And he's got that. 
uh, yeah, I think everyone in life would be yeah. really jealous of that yeah. ability, that mental skill. Yeah. And I, you, don't know, you don't know how it works. Is it just an ability to instantly forget or is it such a core confidence that you go, yeah. that's not relevant? And that's the thing. We probably all kill ourselves over one mistake where we actually we did a really good job loads yeah. of other times, but yeah. he's got the ability to, to remember that brilliant try he scored or the fact that he broke records in a Grand Slam season when the rest of us are going, oh, he dropped the ball yeah. uh, finishing that non-try. So, yeah, it's going to be a really interesting to see just longer term as well how it works out for Stockdale. Yeah, interesting Pro 14 quarterfinal as well. The one that we can have copper fast in the Irish derby between Ulster and Connacht. Uh, just a touch upon Connacht. Uh, we've spoken plenty about Munster and Leinster. Um, an unbelievable game as predicted. Cardiff kind of got rolled by the referee a little bit, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was controversial. The Jason Harris non-awarded try was, uh, was crazy, really. When you look at that TMO angle that shows him dotting down the ball before his hand goes on the touching goal. And even at that, the decision for the five-minute scrum was wrong. I think the law is that it should be in a 22 dropout if that was if it's a simultaneous. simultaneous. Yeah. So that was a bit of a butchering. And I know Cardiff Blues are strongly expressing their discontent at how things worked out. On the other side, you got to look at, at what Connacht did well. And it was more of what we've seen this season. The happiness of players who've been back to use, as they say, their individual weapons. Look at the winning, the Jack Carty try, where... The wind is really strong. They're not going to be able to kick out their 22. They have enough confidence in their ball handling ability to run it out. Aki with holding it like a, I don't know, like a loaf of bread and offloading mm. one-handed. Then Gavin Thornbury bringing his physicality. Dennis Buckley, a loose head prop who loves to play ball, being back to offload out of the contact. And that gets infectious. And then Carty flooding onto the ball off, an, off another lovely link pass from Buckley with Ulton Delan running a really good decoy line, as we mentioned earlier on. And Carty backing himself, kicking ahead and, and using his pace to finish. It was just a pleasure to watch. Defensively, they were good and, and the forwards delivered that mall try. So it's a really happy coaching team as well as a, a happy squad. And Marty Moore's season is over. That's a blow to Ulster. And Connacht will be looking at it and going, yeah, let's go up there. I, mean, I know they're thinking about having four more games in their season. That's what they've planned for now. And that's the mentality around the squad. And even the fact that that's changed is really, um, really positive. Yeah, we'll t uh, get predictions for uh, Munster and Leinster, but just very tentatively, even though we'll go into it in a little bit more detail uh, closer to the date, uh, who would you fancy in that one in Belfast, uh, Ulster and Connacht? You might ask yourself first, Andy. I would, if you had to give you a decision right now, because I'm clearly on the spot, is I would go for Connacht. Okay. Um, I just, I, I think for once... Uh, I'm actually looking forward to a Pro 14 game because I think it's <laughs> I think it's going to be br brilliantly uh, attack focused. Uh, both sides deserve huge um, praise for the way they've played this year and the support lines, the risks they take, the just the general positive attacking rugby at times foolhardy, but it's it's it's. I think it's much easier to get a really fast guy to run slightly slower than it is to get a really slow guy and train him to become fast, if you know what I mean. Both of these sides are kind of, you know, running at a thousand miles a minute. And it's a, it's a case of when it comes to knockout stages, who shows a little bit more control and smarts. That's an easier thing to do than suddenly accelerate uh, from, from slowness and lack of creativity in my mind. So I think it's going to be a brilliant game to watch. And I just have this good feeling or inkling that Connacht can just nick it. Um, I think Carty's probably been maybe the top two players in the country this year he's yeah. he's probably not got enough credit yet and uh, the only thing I would say about Connacht is that I'd love to see them own their success a bit more they're, they're, they're celebrating a lot about you know we've made playoffs we're in Europe next year this is a side that ought to be doing that in my mind and they're also a side that three four years ago won the competition so the mindset evolved from Connacht is like we did great we're in the playoffs Then I'd like to see them just kick that to the side a bit and own it a bit more Is that more so the fans though than the squad and, and I don't know. staff? I don't know it's just an impression yeah, I got I think, Yeah as I said I think the squad are they're planning on winning this Yeah, yeah. I don't think there's a yeah I don't think there's a settling like obviously there was a couple of players you saw it at the end mm. Some of the players were involved in a bit of a dust-up at the end. Bundyaki uh, and a couple others responding badly to a kind of late hit by Seb Davies. It was a bit pathetic, really. Um, but there was a couple of guys, the younger guys maybe kind of celebrating and, and slapping each other in the back. But I think they've 
like refocus very quickly and Andy Friend is ambitious as well and mm. yeah they're, they're going for that trophy uh, lads, you take us back to the dark ages if we can't celebrate on the pitch I mean it's uh, <laughs> no more no more, just a no more fun just a grim handshake <laughs> by the way for on the spot answers that was pretty decent wasn't it <laughs> yeah. Murray you're, you're maybe in, in a word who would you fancy in that one and we will come back to it for Connacht and Ulster yeah, fans listening we will explore a bit more I think Ulster at home big crowd out yeah cool We'll have to get uh, Ava back in to get the tallies on your predictions from <laughs> months ago. Uh, okay, so let's look at the uh, Champions Cup semi-finals very briefly. Um, we'll start, uh, we'll do it chronologically. Uh, Munster in Coventry against Saracens. And I'll start with yourself, Murray. Who wins and maybe why with this one? Yeah, um, I've kind of been, my logical brain has been battling the feeling I've had all week that Munster are going to win this game. Um, oh, me too. And my logical brain is now figuring out reasons why that's going to happen because of the aforementioned spoiling of Tyburn at the breakdown, Peter Manning in the line-out. Um, I went back and watched the Saracens game against Glasgow again yesterday and I was blown away at the time. I remember going, well, no one's going to beat them. But watching it back, I just you see three restarts out in the full from Glasgow. You see a bit of softness. You see a bit of disorganisation around their defence. Munster are the best defensive side, statistically speaking, in Europe. They've conceded the fewest points and fewest tries. They're really well organised. They're suffocating. You look at those two Exeter games, they drew and won against the Premiership leaders, better team than Saracens over the course of this season. They hammered Gloucester away, who are only about eight points behind Saracens now. So they've done it against really good Premiership opposition and the temptation is to just completely big up Saracens. Deservedly the the favourites, the strong favourites coming into this game, but I just have a feeling that the Munster are going to win and I'm going to stick with it, I think. Okay, Andy? Same I uh, oh, Jesus. I think back to <laughs> this is cursed. If you, I know, it's, I, and the worst thing to do is is tip Munster because they won't <laughs> like it. So I want them to win, but also I'll tip Saracens. But I keep going back in my mind to say the the glory days of the All Ireland League in the late nineties when you had aristocratic rich Dublin clubs going down to Limerick with all the resources and maybe more internationals and all that, and someone takes a bite out of them after five minutes, metaphorically, and uh, mm-hmm. suddenly you're getting well. No, probably not. Actually, it actually <laughs> happened many many times, but uh, you know, well organised, well healed you know, lots of resources going into a hijack situation and getting absolutely torn to shreds. A flying column. And uh, absolutely. <laughs> and like, you know, why not go back in, dwell, go back into that kind of cultural uh, strength that is in Munster Rugby and get excited about it and think about the the key, the canny people that you've got in that team and the key performers. We talk about Ryan and Klein and the scrum and O'Mahony and Murray and they're all going to, well, certainly O'Mahony and Murray are going to remember that England game very, very acutely from, from early Six Nations. And just the same kind of construct and going, they're not going to come and physically bully us. We're going to tear strips off them. We're going to disrupt. If they don't have a constructive game plan, who cares? How about just tearing strips off them, being disruptive, affecting how Saris play, get the crowd, which is going to be hugely monster, uh, you know, behind them and suddenly watch this Saracens juggernaut starting wheels coming off. I can just see it happening in my mind. I'd love to see it happening. And I hope the cold logic doesn't take over and Saris squash them, you know. But um, I think, uh, you know, I want, I'd want to see that. So I hope it happens. That's fair. Um, I think we can write Monster off now based on that. <laughs> uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll look at then uh, Leinster and Toulouse. Uh, that one is on Sunday. Should be a cracking game. Uh, I'll start maybe with yourself this time, Andy. Who wins that one and why? Um, I think uh, I, I think Leinster will, will nick it. Um, I can't, I'm, you know, in terms of why... I. Potentially fitness levels, potentially uh, game management, uh, potentially a f- an improved and very very determined Sexton having a big influence on the match. I, it's probably high time at this stage he pulled out a good performance this year. He's not been at his best, um, and he's at his best. He can change European knockout games. You know, probably at a counter. So, um, yeah. Hunger from Johnny, maybe, and discipline and a bit of fitness. I think they're just going to pip it. But to lose are dangerous. Mm. Yeah, I'd add in Robbie Henshaw and Toner to that as well. Yeah. Luke McGrath now being 
approaching full fitness anyway. No team can... Like Leinster's depth is much discussed, as was Ireland's before we realised in Six Nations, okay, when they miss a couple of key guys, it's not as rosy a picture. And I think the same applies to Leinster. But I think with all those guys back fitter, and uh, particularly Henshaw and Toner, as we mentioned, line out and defence-wise, they're going to make a difference. And I think it would be a surprise to me if Leinster delivered this incredible, sweeping, crushing performance. But I think it'll improve and I think they'll have more quality than, than to lose in key positions. Super stuff, boys. Thanks a million. Andy, thanks for coming in. Cheers, Gav. We'll catch you again. Murray, cheers. Thanks, Gav. Sorry for not asking how you are at the start. No, do you know what? I, how are you? Uh, how are you? I'm better now, Andy. <laughs> I am better now. But uh, that was a bit of a shock to the system, I have to yeah. say. You know, I've been working with this guy now for about two years. My mother's so, going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> no manners. Yeah, one of the iTunes reviews gave out to me for trying to uh, insert too much banter into the podcast. And I know he's going to be listening to this now fuming, like, where's Ryan Bailey? <laughs> Eminently more likable Ryan Bailey. We love you, we love you. Thanks a million. Uh, yeah, cheers to you guys for tuning in at home. Thanks for all of your questions and your input and enjoy the Champions Cup semi-finals should be absolutely brilliant we will catch you next Thursday and until then take it easy